0: Isaiah chapter 44 tonight, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, the book of Isaiah this evening. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now and they'd love to get one into your hands. If you don't have one, it'll be marked to our passage this evening for your convenience and please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. This section of Isaiah, God is speaking to the children of Israel and reminding them of His promise that though they had sinned greatly against him, they were not forgotten by Him, and though they were in, would one day ultimately be in a Babylonian captivity for seventy years, that even that, even the greatness of the consequences of their sin couldn't separate them from Him. And his promise to bring them back into the land and to once again inhabit Jerusalem, rebuild the cities of Judah and come back to the land that God had promised to them uh, so many years earlier. God still had plans for their lives. They would really fumbled things very, very badly. But God still had a plan to continue to supply the world with in a greater measure with his scriptures. Uh, the Jewish scriptures come to us through the Jewish people, speaking of the Christ who is to come. And they also had the pinnacle of their achievement as a people in human history. And you think about what the Jews have accomplished. But the greatest thing they've ever accomplished was the grace of God upon them as a people and supplying the world with a Savior, with our Savior. And all that lay ahead in their future despite the uh, grave sin that they had engaged in and how they had put God's plan in jeopardy, God was uh, faithful still uh, related to them and was not through with them. And he says in verse 21 of verse 44, leaving off last time at verse 20, he said, remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Imagine what that must have meant to them. We don't have to imagine too hard. We've all been in the doghouse and we've all needed the forgiveness of sin from God. And then to hear uh, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins return to me for I have redeemed you. And so God reminds them even in their uh, backslidden state and now in their Babylonian captivity that he hadn't forgotten them. Their transgressions uh, were blotted out. They were to return to their redeemer. There was no reason not to return because God still wanted to forgive them and would forgive them. And so this beautiful passage that teaches us that God forgets our sins, but he never, ever forgets us. Now, that's a Savior. That's a sinner's Savior right there, a God who is willing to forget our sins but not forget us. I'll tell you, every one of us needs a God like that, and that's the God of the Bible Revealed wonderfully and beautifully, even in the Old Testament, of course, coming forth in all of his glory in Christ uh, in the New Testament. And then in verse 23, in the light of this, this news that God was speaking uh, to the captives of the opportunity to return, that they weren't forgiven, forgotten, but they were forgiven, God calls upon all of creation Uh, To celebrate this fact, sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth, break forth into singing, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. And thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb I am the Lord. Who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone. I don't know if any of you have helped him do that. I think he did it all by himself. Who spreads abroad the earth by himself. Who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad. And so don't, when you're driving down the highway or the street and you see those uh, people that got like the little crystal ball and for 25 bucks or whatever they charge now, I have no idea to tell you your fortune. Don't go in there. They're crazy. God has driven them crazy. He frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad who turns wise men backwards and makes their knowledge foolishness who confirms the word of his servant speaking of isaiah and here he is talking about his prophecy that one day jerusalem uh, will be inhabited the cities of judah will be rebuilt god is saying concerning all of the idols of babylon and the idols in the world none of them uh, saw it coming at all so god had frustrated them he had confused them then in verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant, uh, speaking of Isaiah, prophesying of this, and performs the counsel of his messengers, speaking of other prophets that declared the same thing, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. To the cities of Judah, you shall be built. I will raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. It seemed absolutely Inconceivable for the children of Israel in the Babylonian captivity that this could ever happen, that we will ever see Jerusalem again, much less rebuild the city. We'll never see Judah again, much less rebuild her cities. And yet God promised that it would come true and it came true. How many promises, this is an interesting thought, at least to me, how many promises, be, wouldn't it be something if we could have like, you know, like in the cartoons where they do like when somebody's thinking something or they're saying something and they put that bubble up above them. If We could do that over every single one of us in this room here tonight and have a listing of all of the promises that at one time or another in God's word looked absolutely impossible. In some circumstance that we found ourselves in, whether a person's known the Lord for six weeks or a person has known the Lord for 60 years, to think of how many promises we test from God's word, from the position of impossibility, where at the moment it looks like this is never going to happen, it can never happen, and yet time after time after time, God's promises come true and come to pass in our lives. And it's wonderful to think about. But how often in order to experience that, they have to look impossible for a time. And that was the condition of the children of Israel at this time. I think it's interesting there in verse uh, 24 when the Lord speaks to them and he identifies himself uh, to them as their redeemer and as he who formed them. Uh, from the womb, and uh, so God is claiming them. He's basically saying, in in this phraseology that He's using, He is saying that you are twice mine. You are mine uh, by virtue of creation, by virtue of birth. You are mine by virtue of redemption, and so it is uh, uh, true. And it speaks about the security of the fact that we belong to him. And the children of Israel, and for us as Christians even today, we have an obligation to God and a security in our life from God that's based on two things. Number one, he created us. And number two, he has redeemed us. This is one of the reasons there's the great battle that goes on in people's minds who do not want to accept the fact of the god of the bible that there is a god behind the creation of the heavens and the earth because if we acknowledge that there is a creator behind our existence then the next logical step is is that we owe something to that creator we owe him our worship we owe him our praise, we owe him our obedience, we owe him our service. There's that recognition that whoever has crea- created me, I owe these things too. And that's why people do not want a lot of the fight concerning Christ, uh, uh, creation and all of this has nothing to do with science, it has a, all together to do with morality. And a person looking and saying, no, I refuse to believe in the existence of a creator that I've been made by God because I understand the implications of it. I would need to come to know him and to worship him and to obey him and serve him. And so this is a lot behind the rejection of God in the world that is all uh, around us. But it doesn't change the fact that every human being has been created by God and we have an obligation to know him and to serve him and to obey him based upon our creation alone. But here he speaks not only of what we owe to him related to creation, but also by virtue of redemption. The word redemption or redeemer, it means to be purchased, uh, to be released upon the payment of a ransom. It means that God has purchased us. And he's bought us. He was buying them out of their bondage to uh, the Babylonian captivity. He has done a greater thing in Christ in that he has redeemed us. He has paid the price that was required for the forgiveness of our sins to free us from a greater bondage in our lives, and that is the bondage of sin. So we are twice his, first on the basis of uh, his creation of us and then second on the basis of Redemption. There's an old story that I heard a long time ago, and I liked it in this vein of a little boy, or young boy, I should say, and he had created this sailboat, and he made it with his own hands, and after he had made this beautiful sailboat, he took it out on... Uh, To a lake and onto a stream and he floated it out with a string and it floated out into the water and the wind is blowing into the sail. Beautiful day, sunny and all. And all of a sudden it moves out into a fast moving part of the stream and it starts to pull the boat away. He can't pull it in by the string. The string breaks and it heads downstream he's lost his boat. He looked all over for it, couldn't find it, didn't know how far downstream it had actually gone. And then a few weeks later, as he's walking home from school, he passed one of the stores, second-hand stores in town. And there was this boat in the window for sale. And he went in there and he said, I made this boat. That boat is mine. He said, I don't care what you made. That, it, that boat, in order for it to be yours, is going to cost you a dollar now he went home and he got out his piggy bank and he took the four quarters back to the store and he bought his boat and as he took and he hugged the boat he declared now you're twice mine first i made you and now i bought you and speaking of the security of the ownership on that boat and god feels the same way toward us we are twice owned by him the security of our relationship with him first he made us and then he has Uh, purchased us. Then in verse 28 God declares who says of Cyrus and here God has been prophesying through this middle section of the book of Isaiah, that he is going to one day deliver the children of Israel out of the Babylonian, uh, their Babylonian captivity. He's going to raise up a king who's going to do it. The king is going to come out of the east, and so forth. And now, finally, at this point, he even gives the name of the king that will defeat Babylon and secure the release of the children of Israel from Babylon to return to Jerusalem and to Judea, uh, to Judah. And he said. Uh, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And so God declares that I'm going to secure your release from that captivity by a man who's going to come into human history by the name of Cyrus. And he gave uh, the very... Uh, that gave the very name of the king that would accomplish that. We know from history that uh, here this prophecy is given 150 years before uh, Cyrus is even born and, uh, and ultimately Cyrus did become the king over the Medo-Persian Empire who conquered and defeated the Babylonian and the Babylonian Empire. But remember that when Isaiah gives this prophecy, the Babylonian Empire doesn't even exist. The Assyrian Empire is in power. The amazing ability of God to speak prophetically of the future with 100% uh, accuracy and so, God had uh, once redeemed the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt through a series of ten great miracles, ten great plagues. In order to accomplish it, here He declares that He's going to deliver the children of Israel from the Babylonian captivity through a single great. Uh, miracle that he's going to accomplish through a Gentile king or a Gentile monarch. God has so many ways to keep his promises, and uh, it isn't always the one that we expect. And it certainly wasn't what the children of Israel expected, that he's going to use a pagan Gentile king to secure our release. And some of them didn't like it, and God is going to address them related to that in just a little bit. But Um, Here is this fabulous prophecy, and the Lord goes on then in chapter uh, 45 to speak uh, directly to his anointed, to Cyrus, about the great things that he was going to do again 150 years before uh, he is even born in human history. Now, the remarkable thing here, you have God... Uh, prophesying concerning Cyrus before he's born, speaking of the defeat of a Babylonian empire by Cyrus before Babylon is even an empire. And and so these amazing prophecies that are given in the Word of God. And this is why uh, Bible critics try to attack all of this, the supernaturalness of the Bible, the witness to the inspiration of Scripture that prophecy and fulfilled prophecy is, and they look at prophecies like this and they say, those are too specific, these are too amazing, this just couldn't happen. I mean, the impact of the prophecies and the fulfillment of the prophecies is hitting them dead on. It's having the impact that God intends it to have upon everyone. And the impact that it's intended to have is who is this God that is able to do this and how can I know him? And so some people who are honest will then read the prophecies, look at it in that way and say, only God can be, is able to do something like this. I want to know him and have a relationship with him. And then he leads us to Christ in order that we might have a relationship with him. But others look at it they don't want to believe in the Bible. They don't want to believe in, in you know, submission to God and that, in, and that this is a book that we're supposed to know and we're supposed to obey and, and live by and all. So they look at a prophecy like this, that specific, that perfect, uh, that pre as it is, and they've got to do something with it. And so they come up with what's called the Two Isaiah uh, Theory and the idea... That chapters forty through forty through fifty-five were written by an anonymous second Isaiah who. Uh, came on the scene after the first Isaiah and he just kind of continued Isaiah's writing deceptively and he prophesied when uh, uh, all of these prophecies concerning Cyrus when Cyrus was already uh, on the world scene and on the move. They have a couple of big problems with holding that position And, and one of the problems, it's the lesser of the two, but it's a significant problem. And that is, those of you who have been going with us in these recent weeks through these most recent chapters, you realize that God is giving these prophecies ahead of time and saying, these prophecies and the fulfillment of them make me unique among all who call themselves God in the world. And so the point that he's making is is that only God can prophesy in this way ahead of time, 100% accuracy and have them then be fulfilled and that he is that God and that he is the one that we're looking for and and have a need to worship. So the whole point that he's making here is in terms of his unique qualifications to be called God in people's lives. They want to undermine it by destroying the prophecies that prove the point. So to do that is to undermine not just the thrust of the individual prophecies, but to undermine the entire section of the book of Isaiah. A guy would have to be out of his mind, sleep-deprived, to write a section of Isaiah and be making a point and then remove the very proofs that make the point. So it's utterly illogical. The second Isaiah... Theory related to Isaiah. The bigger problem with that particular theory is that Jesus, in quoting Isaiah in the New Testament, he quotes from both sections of Isaiah from Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 and also from Isaiah chapter 40 all the way through 66. He quotes Isaiah continually. He quotes from both sections of Isaiah and ascribes both of them to Isaiah. And so Jesus, that's the only voice I need on the issue, candidly. I remember hearing a story by Chuck Smith. He was on a a radio talk show in Southern California. Chuck tells the story and and um, Pastor Chuck and he uh, he was, it was a call in thing he 's in his office. And then uh, the radio interviewer called him, got him on the speakerphone, and then he called some other guy that held to this particular view or whatever. And so the guy, he was going to interview the both of them, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so the guy begins his interview of them and immediately it becomes apparent that here they were supposed to talk about a subject and be complimentary one another on this subject, but come to realize this guy doesn't believe in the divine inspiration of Scripture at all, and Chuck begins to speak about the witness of fulfilled prophecy to that fact, and quoting here from Isaiah and passages from Isaiah, and the guy said, well, he says, you know, there were two Isaiahs uh, that wrote the book of Isaiah, and then Pastor Chuck made mention of the thing that I just mentioned, and that is Jesus himself quoted from both sections of Isaiah and ascribed it to the same Isaiah And he said, are you telling me that you know more than Jesus? And the guy said, yes, we know more than Jesus today. Chuck hung up. He ended the interview. And then they tried to call back. I don't think he answered the phone. But he said later on as he was speaking about all of this in a sermon at a pastor's conference, he said he hung up and he didn't want to talk in the interview because he said, I wouldn't know how to talk to anyone who's smarter than Jesus. (laughs) so here he is he speaks of cyrus i mean it's the very point it, it boosts the very point that he's making and thus says the lord to his anointed to cyrus whose right hand i have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. And he's speaking about how irresistible uh, uh, Cyrus will be in his conquering uh, of the Middle East. He'll just break everything down. He's going to overrun all of it. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. He'll do it with such ease that only God was a part of it, I will break in pieces the gates of bronze, these impenetrable walls just broken in pieces, and cut the bars of iron, and I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, wonderful, am the God of Israel." And why did God do this? Why did he give uh, Cyrus here this ability and make him the leader of the world ruling empire at that time it was for the sake of his people and his plan through his people we talked about it last week as you're watching world history unfold and as God looks at it it's not about oil and gold and money and and commercial Babylon and all of these different kinds of things that we think it's all about geopolitical and boundaries of nations all all of that is going to burn one day all of history that's important to the lord it has to do with his people with those who are yet going to put their faith in christ and with his people and and taking care of them and refining our lives preparing us for heaven all of these wonderful things and so God raised this king up, spoke of him in advance to secure their release from that captivity, a release that he had prophesied long before. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. And I have named you, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no other God besides me. I will gird you though you have not known me. And so uh, Cyrus did not become a follower of Jehovah. Uh, he was a histo- from history we know that he was a worshiper of the god Marduk and uh, talked about him a little bit this morning. And the Lord said, I'm still going to raise you up. I'm going to use you even though uh, you are not uh, don't know me. And so God's use of the pagans. Sometimes we think, and the children of Israel are going to really struggle with this, think that God only uses Christians to accomplish his will. He can use anything uh, to accomplish his will. I believe he did use a donkey in the Old Testament. <laughs> Uh, to try and rebuke uh, a prophet who was going astray, and uh, that they may know uh, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create the darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. And so uh, in the use of prophesying of this Cyrus who is to come, Cyrus comes into human history. The idea was the whole world would marvel at the fulfillment of that prophecy and come to know the Lord. And I'll tell you, that prophecy is still in the book today. If there were no other prophecy in the whole Bible, that Bible still calls this passage and this promise, this prophecy calls on the whole world to worship the God of the Bible on the basis of prophecy and fulfilled prophecy, something that no one else, no other God, no other person can do with the 100% accuracy of the Lord. Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. And so... This redemption of the children of Israel, bringing them out of the Babylonian captivity, an expression of God's grace. They didn't deserve it, but also an expression of his righteousness. He had said, you'll go into captivity for 70 years for your sin. And now they had, uh, will have uh, been in that captivity for 70 years. Now it is the righteous thing to release them. So all of an expression of God, both his grace and And his righteousness. Woe to him who strives with his maker. Now that's a a good thing. Uh, Has a a tremendous application. On a a lot of. uh, Different fronts. and, And. Uh, can apply it in a lot of different directions. But here, God is anticipating a pushback from the children of Israel that when they hear, yes, they want to be redeemed from the bondage of of, of Babylon, but when they hear that God is going to use a pagan Gentile king to deliver them, no Moses, no 10 plagues, and so it was kind of an affront to them that God would use this pagan Gentile king to redeem them. And so he's expecting this pushback that they're going to strive with, uh, with him as their maker. And so he speaks of the lack of wisdom in doing so. It's kind of like people who don't like God's way of salvation through Jesus Christ. And, and they, they want to strive with God over that. How come there aren't many ways? All I know is when I became a Christian, I was just happy there was one way. You know, when you're a sinner and you know you're on your way to eternal damnation, righteously so, rightly so, for your sin, and God offers a way of salvation, the proper response is to be thankful for that, not say, listen, I want five, I want a choice here. That's crazy to strive with our maker concerning this. We take the Savior and the salvation that pleases him. Woe to him who strives with his maker. To strive with our maker with God is like, uh, let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth, a broken piece of potsherd. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, to the potter, what you are making? And uh, given the, the great gulf distance between the wisdom and the power of a potter and a piece of clay, it's folly for a piece of clay then to uh, argue with the potter over what he's being made into. He said, uh, uh, Woe to, or shall his, your handiwork say he has no hands? Verse 10. Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, the mother, what have you brought forth? And so concerning the newborn babe, does it make any sense for a newborn baby to question and challenge its parents? This especially given this massive, again, gap that exists between the two in terms of wisdom and understanding. It would be to have everything completely backwards. And so the foolishness of the illustration of a piece of clay with a potter, of a newborn baby with its parents, it's even more of a folly for mere men to uh, challenge God concerning uh, his ways. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, And his maker as he lays out his qualifications for being able to save us or deliver us or redeem us any way that he chooses. Ask of me things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands you command me. I've made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands stretched out the heavens and all their hosts I have commanded. God says I'm uniquely qualified to make these decisions without consulting you on the basis of being the creator of all of creation. And then uh, on the, speaking of his use of Cyrus, he said, I've raised him up in righteousness. Not that Cyrus was righteous, but what God was going to accomplish through him was righteous. And I will direct all his ways... He shall build my city, allow Jerusalem to be rebuilt, and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. And so you would have thought that in order for the children of Israel to be released from their captivity in Babylon, that Cyrus would have said, wait a second. You're not, these are pretty good people. They have a part of the kingdom. They're an important part of the kingdom. You've got to pay me money to release you folks. And you know how government is. Anywhere they can try and get money, they want to get money. So here is a miracle right here in the Bible. Cyrus is going to give them up without asking for a penny. He's going to release them. Again, something that is God, the specifics of the miracle of the redemption is God lays it out. And then uh, the Lord speaks of himself as the only God and Savior. Verse 14, thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and of the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you, they shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you, speaking of the Jews, and they will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, there is no other God. And so. Jerusalem one day is going to rule the world we know that Jesus during the thousand year reign of Christ will rule from Jerusalem and at that time this speaks very strongly of the kingdom age at that time uh, people from all over the world former enemies of the Jews will recognize that they were the worshipers of the true and the living God and then be drawn to worship him themselves truly you are God Isaiah uh, praises the Lord for uh, all of this possibility of redemption, the future related to Jerusalem. Truly you are God who hide yourself, O God of Israel the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever. And ever for thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, but who formed it to be inhabited. It was created for Adam and Eve. I am the Lord and there is No other. And so, speaking of God's superiority over everything else that men uh, and women worship in the world, and his superiority on the basis of uh, being the creator of all things. And then in verse 19, on the basis of prophecy, I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge, who carry uh, the wood of their uh, carved images. God challenges his these idols that people were worshiping to match him in creation and in prophecy. Assemble yourself, come down near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge, who carry the wood of their carved image, and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them counsel together who have... The, Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord and there is no other God beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. And so all of the evidence, the evidence of creation, the evidence of prophecy, all of it speaks to the fact that he alone is God and the Savior and there's none beside him. And then God in verse 22, he invites the whole world to be saved by putting their faith in him. Look to me, he said, and be saved. Not just look to me and believe that I exist. Uh, We need to have God not only know him as one who's alive, but we need to make him our savior. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And here's the reason. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself... The word is gone out of my mouth and righteousness and it shall not return that to me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall take an oath and he shall say uh, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength to him men shall come and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him in the Lord, all the descendants of Israel and in the Lord speaks of a trust in Jesus in the Lord. All the descendants of Israel shall be justified and, uh, shall, uh, shall be justified and shall glory. And so he speaks here offering men salvation, inviting them to be saved and, uh, And that salvation is found in him. And speaking here of every knee, verse 23, talking about every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess or take an oath. And, of course, as he's speaking about salvation, he's speaking of his Savior here uh, to come into human history, Jesus. And uh, the Holy Spirit uh, rightly ascribes this passage wonderfully to Jesus in Philippians Uh, chapter 2, where Paul writes, Therefore God also has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and given him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so there's a sense in which the Father is our Savior as well, for he has provided us, with our Savior, Jesus being our Savior, Savior too. And he speaks about those in verse 24 who will profess Jesus as Lord, as God, as their Savior. They will do it unto salvation and uh, surely in the Lord they say uh, I have righteousness and strength and then there is another group who will uh, be incensed against the Savior but one day they will profess that Jesus confess him uh, as uh, for who he is. They're going to bow their knee. He's going to be highly exalted. They're going to uh, profess Uh, that Jesus is Lord. It's just a matter of whether a person is going to do it under salvation or do it under damnation, but it will occur. We'll stop there tonight and uh, give ourselves some time uh, to enjoy the Lord's Supper uh, this evening.